The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show today. Today is actually part two of a two-part interview with Monica L. Miller, author of Slaves to Fashion, Black Dandyism and the Styling of Black Diasporic Identity. So, Definitely check out part one if you have not already. Yeah, last week we learned about the Black Dandy's origins in the quote-unquote luxury slaves of 18th century Europe and his exportation in the 1800s to America, where the Black Dandy simultaneously stood in opposition to and also fueled the rise of blackface theater. We also learned about W.E.B. Du Bois, who rehabilitated the Black Dandy in his fiction as a highly respected figure and activist much like the author himself, who also used dressed and dandyism to assert his intelligence and sophistication. So, Monica, we are so pleased to have you back. Welcome. Yes, welcome back, Monica. So today we turn our attention to the Harlem Renaissance, a very exciting time and place in 1920s New York, and a place in which Black dandies played an especially pivotal role within Black modernism and the making of the so-called quote-unquote new Negro. Where other scholars have argued that Black dandyism during this period stood in direct opposition to Black modernism, in what ways do you actually think it defined it? It's something that you coin as a freedom dream. Yeah. I mean, I talk about kind of dan- Black dandyism and um, and freedom dreams as different ways in which the, the freedom dream manifests, right? I think over time and over historical time. I mean, the Renaissance is an amazing period in that regard. Um, as I mentioned before, it's the first time large numbers of black move to urban areas and um, and are able to establish kind of really large scale black communities. And what that means is that, you know, people had been working in their home communities in kind of small ways, some small and some large ways for um, striving to do better, striving for more, right, in various ways, like striving to to be different, right, to not be defined by the ways in which blackness had been defined for them, you know, during slavery and its aftermath during Reconstruction, right? I mean, it's this constant struggle for black people to get out from under, in some ways, the ways that black people are being represented, the ways in which they're, you know, being treated by various institutions, right? It's, it was, it's always about moving toward the ability to self-define. And it becomes, I mean, Harlem in the 1910s, you know, 20s, I mean, early 1930s, becomes this place where that, for the first time, for many people, Harlem and you know Chicago and Boston and other places like Detroit, Washington D.C. around the same time become these places where it seems possible for the first time. It seems possible because Black people are gathered in community, large community, in which all kinds of ideas, right, about choice, 
about different kinds of choices about, you know, how are we going to be black? How are we going to be black and women? How are we, you know, what, how do we think about blackness in relationship to sexuality? How do we want to do, like, how do we want to do any of this? What about black art? What does that mean? Right? I mean, are we artists or are we black artists? Right? What kind of responsibilities do we have to our communities? What kinds of responsibilities do we have to ourselves? Can we actually afford to have responsibility to ourselves? Yeah. Like, these are all kinds of questions that people were able to ask individually and with each other for the first time. So the Dandyism comes into this in a kind of fascinating way because on the one hand, there, there are some actors, right, in the Renaissance who, who again want to, I mean, there's this constant riffing that goes on in American culture that has to do with black representation and black people. So on the one hand, black dandies come in as a critique of minstrelsy, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, you think a black dandy is that? Let me show you, right? <laughs> the Another way a black dandy can be, right? I can have this fancy clothing. I can have this education. I can have this kind of like social life. I can have all of this, right? Let me show you that, right? So there's one, that's one version of it. And then there's a Du Bois version of it, who is completely much more interested, although it slides sometimes, in respectability culture. It's like, I am going to respect my people, and I'm going to be respected by majority culture, and this is the way that I'm going to represent myself, right? And um, and my aspiration. It's not just about pleasing you, majority culture, but it's also about pleasing myself and understanding that I have a right to this. That's not just about a response to you. Then there are other kinds of people who are just like you know really exuberant about the ways in which blackness and modernity can go like it's a huge time of experimentation again one of these moments of social upheaval right in which and we think about the jazz age as this way like Harlem Renaissance and the jazz age are you know co-terminal which people are experimenting with gender they're experimenting with sexuality you know this is a period in which immigration to the US is a big deal they're experimenting with um, with class boundaries right so so there's this way in which all of these things come together to create multiple kinds of black dandies who are in in some ways conversation with each other um, and in conversation with both black culture, right, as well as majority culture, asking the question, what does a modern black person look like? What can that person embody? How is that person embodied? And what relationship does clothing play to that as, again, this kind of social semiotic that is constantly capable of being read and sending out messages? Right. And you actually identify two public parades in particular as being especially significant to this display of modern Blackness. Can you please tell us about the silent protest parade of 1917 and the march celebrating the return of the heroic 369th Infantry Regiment from France? Um, that was at the end of World War One. So in what way was clothing especially significant in this display of Black modernity within the time period? What I was emphasizing about the fact that that this converse, these conversations are happening kind of individually and within community is really important for thinking about these two parades, right? The silent protest parade was a parade organized by Du Bois and by James Weldon Johnson, who were associated with the NAACP at that time, to protest um, a series of brutal kind of lynchings and uh, race riots. So one of the main arms of the NAACP at that time was, um, was to bring constant attention to the violence of, of lynching. And every time, every time they got a report, right, of someone being lynched, they would hang a flag outside of their offices in, um, in Harlem, um, which meant the flag was up pretty frequently. So this has been a particularly violent time. And they said, you know, black people are perceived as being excessive, excessively loud, 
really um, outre in terms of not always obeying um, class boundaries, you know, as as kind of, you know, in your face. I mean, as 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 people who, again, are difficult to control, right, and need control. So they said, okay, if we're perceived that way, right, and some of us are, um, you know, that perception leads to um, or can lead to violence, right, and even violence that's associated with, um, you know, with, with lynching. If, if people are perceiving this to be the case, why don't we flip the script? Why don't we have a parade that is silent in which we are all dressed in a kind of uniform of mourning, right, in which we walk from Harlem, right, downtown, right, with just a drumbeat, right? What if we do this kind of performance of blackness, right, that includes this kind of sartorial element and also included, they, they had signs um, that they held up rather than shouting, rather than, um, you know, kind of call and response that might happen in a parade protest, rather than that they just held up signs, right, and walked in a huge group. The men were wearing, I think, black and white suit, like black suits with white shirts and, um, and hats. And the women were all dressed in white dresses with, I think, a black sash around, uh, around the waist. Hundreds of people walking down Fifth Avenue um, with signs that said, you know, the most, one of the most famous ones is, uh, Mama, do lynchers go to heaven? Wow. Right. So it was this incredible display of control, right, of a controlled protest that was designed to, um, you know, kind of buck all of the stereotypes associated with um, uh, with blackness as being kind of wild and out of control that needed to be controlled in some ways by excessive violence. So that parade happened. The other parade, right, um, which happened, I think, two years um, later. Right. One of the things that happened in um, in the First World War is that um, and happened in, in, in some ways in all of the all of the wars that the United States has been involved in, but in particular had a particular resonance in the First World War. Right. Was that black soldiers who served in the war. Um, and this was, I think, the last war that had segregated regiments, um, black soldiers that served in the war got a taste of what it was like right, to uh, in some ways um, fight for their country. Right. And sometimes if they were abroad, you got a taste of what it was like to be in a different um, sociopolitical cultural environment where the rules around race and racialization and racial oppression were slightly different. Right. So World War One was one of those times in which there were significant numbers of African-American soldiers who were stationed in Europe, in particular in France. Right. And actually, they're credited for bringing jazz to Europe. Right. So um, 369th Infantry had a band like a brass band associated with it that, you know, played a, had a long residency in Paris and actually brought, was really significantly influential in terms of um, creating um, Paris as a kind of jazz capital of the world um, after this moment. But what was important about that parade is that when, when those soldiers came home, having on the one hand, you know, agreed to sacri- potentially sacrifice their lives for the United States, hoping that the principles on which the United States was founded, right? You know, um, freedom and justice for all around this idea of being able to pursue happiness, right? And individual happiness. They thought that maybe their service would enable more of that when they returned, right? That social, you know, social justice was a part of this, um, was a part of this gesture. So they come home and they had not been allowed actually to participate in some of the freedom parades that happened in, in France, but they were given a parade um, here in New York. And here they marched up Fifth Avenue, right? And they're kind of battered uniforms, um, you know, ragtag looking. They, they'd seen battle, right? So they were, they were showing on the one hand um, their heroism 
and their, um, you know, the fact that they had survived, that they had been through this, that they had fought bravely, they were decorated, they had been, you know, one of the best, most decorated um, regiments, um, uh, certainly locally, but, you know, I'm, I'm assuming also nationally. So they call them all the way up Fifth Avenue, right? And as soon as they get to Harlem, everything changes. The band starts playing, people play jazz, there's dancing in the streets, there's a way in which they're, they're even their kind of like uniforms, right? become not just they they were military uniforms as the way up fifth avenue they were part of that process but once they get to harlem then it's about kind of really and truly celebrating what they represent to the community right as having done this incredible service as having survived as having as having kind of you know moved culture around the world as having quote unquote proved that black people right could you know could be productive citizens, right? Um, they were going to be productive citizens while in the war, and then they were going to be Harlem residents, right? <laughs> when they got to um, Harlem, and again, showed a really different, two different ways. It's like code switching, right? That actually had a kind of, you know, boundary around 110th Street, right? Um, you know, there's, this is what you show, right, to majority culture that makes sense to them, that, you know, is a language they understand. And this is what you show crossing the street to your home community, right, that makes sense to them, that communicates something in a different language. So there's a way in which, like, the same uniform crossing that boundary meant something really different. Yeah, and just two incredibly powerful demonstrations. And I, I think there's photographs out there and I will post them absolutely if I can get my hands on them because it really is incredible to see. So now I'm hoping you can talk to us about the famous parade of quote unquote fairies, which is something I absolutely never heard of. It's at the annual Hamilton Lodge Ball. How this event in particular both challenged and defined conceptions of Black modernity and Black dandyism, especially in relation to gender and sexuality. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to think about, like, to think about the parade. I want to go back and say a little bit about that. I mean, parades are, um, I mean, we think about them, we have a million of these in New York right now. So it's like, you know, every um, ethnic group and uh, group affiliation has a parade. The summer's full of parades, right? But what's really, really important about parades, and if we think about them um, historically, is that they are moments when particular groups are allowed and encouraged to occupy public space. And, you know, for so long, again, part of the structure of, um, of slavery and then the kind of policing structure that comes out of slavery and institutions of slavery, right, so, so much of that was about controlling public space, right, of making sure who has access to it and who doesn't have access to it. So even in the Negro Election Day and the Pinkster Festivals, there was often parading that happened then. Right. So the idea that, you know, people who normally have no control over public space would be told to go home, to get out, to move, not to loiter. Right. That those people would be able to kind of occupy the streets and turn the streets into something that has the potential to celebrate their identity, has the potential to celebrate their communities, has the potential, again, to ask these kinds of questions about hierarchy. It's, it's really unprecedented. So that's why it only happens, you know, once a year. Um, so the pro silent protest parade and the um, the infantry parade, the 369th parade, were, again, moments in which Black people were occupying, I mean, Fifth Avenue, public space, right, and prime public space in New York, given that space in some ways to express who they are, again, the aspirations of the community, right, as well as their affiliation, in particular with the 379th, with being American, right, which is really important, right, of being in some ways, we can also think about the movement across 110th Street as being African-American, 
or you know, Americans of African descent, right? It's about creating that kind of hyphenation. The Hamilton Lodge Ball, right, and its parade of fairies is a different kind of parade in that it wasn't necessarily um, public space, but it had a public recognition. I mean, one of the reasons why we know about the Hamilton Lodge Ball is that it was covered in mainstream magazines. So basically what the, what the lodge, what the ball was, it's a drag performance, right? It is a kind of a night in which there was a performance as well as a competition between cross-dressed, often racial minorities, so African-Americans, um, um, other kinds of ethnic um, American um, folks then, cross-dressed um, folks who would dress up, um, who were at the time called um, gender inverts, right, or transvestites, right, who would dress up in women's clothing and have this kind of beauty contest or ball, right? First there was a, first there was a kind of parade, and then it became a beauty contest. What's fascinating about this is that it was covered in the mainstream media and was totally seen as a kind of, you know, a regular course of events of what happens in Harlem. It was attended by, at one point, it became so popular that it moved from Harlem to Madison Square Garden. It was attended by, you know, 500, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 people, and um, was a social event that um, was a kind of on this kind of social register, right? It was a social event that that people um, went to in order to um, in order to be seen, right? So it was a kind of you know even a kind of celebrity type event. What's interesting about this is that it wasn't necessarily an event that was mocked or made fun of. It was an event that recognized, I think, intersectional identity. It recognized this kind of experimentation that we think about as definitive of modernism, like experimentation with gender um, expression, experimentation with sexuality, um, experimentation even with kind of, you know, racial identities or racial kind of identity affiliations, right? It was this, it was a kind of put everything, class, race, sexuality, gender on a spectrum, right? And actually celebrated that spectrum or was interested in the idea right, that there was a kind of spectrum. That is not to say, for example, that, you know, homophobia wasn't rife in, um, in both Harlem and in New York in general, but there were these pockets. I mean, just as Harlem was a pocket, was a freedom dream, there were these pockets even within that dream that were even more elaborated along those lines, right, um, that were, again, about this kind of possibility, experimental possibility, experimental kind of opportunity. And I mean, it's just amazing to me that, um, you know, early 20th century Harlem or early 20th century New York um, welcomed this kind of event for a while, right? I mean, that it was, it was popular and at a certain point mainstream. So we get a sense that, you know, the way that we think about, so for example, sexuality, even in the later moments, so say like in the 50s, is not how we've always thought about sexuality, right? Um, you couldn't use the word gay Right. Um, uh, I think homosexual was in use at that time. But the, but the way in which we def way in which people were defining themselves and the way, again, which people could be, say, black and modern. Right. Had a spectrum that we ought to remember. Right. In order to think about, again, how, um, you know, how we can be free. Right. And the kinds of things that we need to think about if we're really thinking about liberation. Right. And actually, I had never heard of this dodgeball and I feel like it kind of pro provided the. Um foundation for the drag balls of the 1980s in Harlem. Oh, absolutely. It didn't even provide the foundation. I would say that it was the beginning of that because these balls actually, they never stopped. They went underground. Yeah. If you haven't seen the documentary Paris is Burning, 
There's actually a wonderful new TV show called Posed, and I cannot recommend it enough. It is incredible, and it's about this period of drag balls in um, Harlem in the 1980s. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So we're going to actually fast forward a bit to the 21st century for our last question here today. And you identify three artists of practitioners of what you call new dandyism. So artists who themselves self-style as dandies and or address dandyism in their work. So in what ways do I.K. Uday, Lyle Ashton Harris, and Yinka Shonabari uh, redefine dandyism in the present day? I especially love what Yinka says about how as an artist of African origin, people actually expect protest in his work. Um, but he says, yes, okay, I'm here to protest, but I'm going to do it like a gentleman. It's, it is going to look very nice. Yeah, I mean, I think these new 21st century dandies, and this is the thing that really, um, the discovery of them um, was in some ways really wonderful and a really, really important part of, um, you know, of what became my book. They were not a part of the kind of original manuscript. And when I moved to New York and started looking around at the, um, at the art scene here, I was like, oh, look what's happening, right? <laughs> um, look at these black artists who are, who are not just talking about dandyism historically, right? Because Yinka Shonabari does that um, really beautifully in his work. 
but are themselves really interested in dandyism as critique, right? And as, a, as critique that enfolds all of the things that we've talked about here historically, but they're also interested in thinking about um, globalization, thinking about ideas about cosmopolitanism, um, thinking about also aesthetics, right? So these, these, were, these were artists who were also really thinking about, you know, how do we define a black aesthetic, right? And what, what does that aesthetic owe? Right to Europe, um, to uh, to European imperialism, to um, to the ways in which we think about "quote unquote" Western civilization. So they were all kind of using dandyism. It's again this kind of like pointed deployment of clothing, gesture, and wit to do that in ways that I thought were really fascinating. So when Ninka says, "I'm okay, to, I'm here to protest," again, he's saying everybody expects a black artist to mount some kind of protest against the against the machine and the man right i mean it's like that's that's what black artists do that's why we have them right um because they are um they're kind of trained to do that for um for us and for the culture he's like okay yeah there's going to be protests because he like many other you know black figures in the world had a lot to complain about um he said yes i'm going to do that but i'm going to do it like a gentleman again against your expectation right it's going to look very nice he said it's going to be so beautiful Right. That on the one hand, you're going to try to you, you will appreciate my skill as an artist. Right. You will know that I know about aesthetics and the way that they work. Right. I'm going to show you. Right. He's, he's really right back in some ways, um, you know, alongside Subis, but but in a very different vein. He's like, I'm going to show you that your expectations are completely false by playing on them. Right. So I'm going to, again, kind of, you know, make a joke <laughs> about your expectations, but in a way that is so well done that your only response is going to be to applaud. Right. So he, he and um, I.K. and Lyle Ashton Harris are were really, really interested in that. But they were also interested, in, again, similar to their um, Harlem Renaissance counterparts of expanding the idea right, of what counts as blackness expanding the idea of, um, of, you know, how do we think about artists who are black or black artists, about adding a kind of this expansive um, nature to the ways in which we think about all of those things um, in their work, right, but also like as their work, right, in terms of the way that they, um, the way that they used um, dandyism as this kind of interrogative form, right, it has primarily a question asking form, a form that questions hierarchies, that questions expectations, that questions, um, you know, that is that is about subverting all those things. They said, you know, this is the form in which I, I think that they can do this. And they also did it in a way that I think in terms of the aesthetic question, right, became one in which they were trying to point out, right, as black artists in the diaspora, a lot of them have, um, a lot of them, you know, live and work in New York, but come from other places. Yinka, um, lives and work now in, um, in London, but he's from Nigeria. Um, Lyle Ashton Harris has, has a lot of, um, grew up partly in um, Tanzania. Ike Ude is also um, from um, Nigeria originally, but then also grew up in London and now lives here in New York. I mean, they're also interested in thinking about this definition of blackness really in a in truly expanded globalized um, form. So again, asking that question, how do you think about an African artist? Are those African artists the people who are making wood sculptures? From the 19th century, or can we actually think about an African artist as somebody who's, um, you know, putting together these incredible? If we think about Yinka, incredible installations or even performances, right? That reference 
the 19th century imperialism, slavery, right? But do it in ways that are completely unexpected and allow you to see them in new ways, right? So, so they're asking that kind of question, um, globalized question about black art and also proposing black art in some ways, I think, ultimately, proposing black art as, an, as the art that we not only need now, but the art that is now, right? Um, black artists, black street style, black fashion, black all of those things, right, in some ways as, um, as modern style. Right. And for those of our listeners who might not have heard of these artists, Yinka, for instance, is incredibly famous for his um, use of Dutch wax fabric in, in creating these incredible, well, garments and Western garments. So if you have a bustle gown in this like incredibly beautiful, colorful Dutch wax cotton, which is a celebrated and beloved fabric in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is he saying there by combining these two pieces in his work? Because they are, they're incredibly beautiful and yet subversive statements about imperialism, about colonialism and about slavery. Right. So that, again, like it brings us back to where we began and that he's, he's using this Dutch watch fabric, which I mean, the, the name gives you a clue to even how the fabric itself is really complicated, right? The Dutch wax fabric is not original to Africa at all. It is, um, it was produced by, um, by Dutch uh, imperialists in Indonesia um, originally, right? And um, when Indonesians, in relationship to a to an indigenous fabric form that um, Indonesians already had, the Indonesians didn't like the the Dutch version of it. So that then then the the Dutch sent it to their colonies in Africa, where it became popular amongst Africans um, and became adopted by Africans as now we what we kind of think of as African fabric, right? So it has this incredible kind of uh, journey through European imperialism before it even gets to Africa. And then when it gets to Africa, it becomes transformed again. So some of these fabrics have been really kind of actual political garments and that they, they advertise, you know, um, political campaigns. Um, they have the figures sometimes of people who are running for office and president. They sometimes have critiques on them or they reference co- popular culture. Like I have a dress right now that says high life on it, which is a form of music, right? So it's sort of like, you know, kind of like a, an in the club dress that's about, you know, that itself is talking about the club, right? It's not only participating in fashion as a semiotic, but it includes, it includes often semiotic messages in the fabric itself. So Yinka uses these fabrics to fashion, you know, 18th and 19th century um, British clothing, impeccably tailored, right? So these are beautiful hand sewn garments right? Well, he wants you to notice that every time you see something in Victoria and Albert Museum, there's a laboring African behind that, right? Every time you look at a, you know, a, a salon scene, right, in, say, an, an adaptation of, um, of one of the Austins or the Brontes, what you're looking at there, right, is, again, this kind of material, this culture of consumption, right, that created, you know, the tea, the coffee, the chocolate um, that's being consumed in these in these upper middle class or, or arist- aristocratic environments, right? So he's trying to create that critique. At the same time, though, he's showing craftsmanship, artistry, I mean, what, what I call kind of, you know, uh, creative intelligence in the face of boundaries, right? He's showing, right, um, all of these things at the same time, right? So it's, it's critique, but it's not just critique, right? It's critique that has this incredible, I think, kind of aesthetic philosophy behind it, right? And and that is in some ways the critique that um, that again becomes beautiful and becomes beautiful in a way that we can actually also appreciate it, not just as critique and politics, but also um, 
as art. So it's not just art for art's sake, right? But it's art for art's sake, for politics' sake, for sake, for sake, for sake, right? So there are many ways that you can fill <laughs> that in. So it becomes this incredible um, scene, right? He's interested in scenes. It becomes this incredible scene where, where all of those things are possible in ways that they would not have been had that artist not been in there and done these particular kinds of things. Wow. Well, Monica, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah. I mean, dress listeners, go out and get a copy of Slaved Fashion. Um, I, I have to admit that I definitely cried reading this book a couple times. <laughs> but oh. I mean, it's an incredibly complex, you know, subject matter. And it's uh, for these people to have been literally stripped of their identity and, you know, forced to wear um, in the millions clothing that was not their clothing. Mm-hmm. And yet from this destruction emerges this self-fashioning black dandy and and he reclaims his power so long denied him and he subverts and takes control of all of these these things that were once meant to oppress him and to racialize him. It's, it's just an incredibly powerful book and I thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Cassidy. Monica, thank you for joining us and sharing your research. Cass, I'm so glad that you two spoke about Yinka Shonobare. I have been a fan of his work for years. Yeah. And I don't think I ever mentioned this on the show, but prior to becoming a fashion historian, I actually was a gallerist in contemporary art galleries and foundations for about 10 years. So I've been following Yinka's work very, very closely for a really long time. And you touched on the fact that his use of um, Dutch wax cloth is very important in his work. And I absolutely plan on doing an episode about the history of Dutch wax cloth because I am fascinated by it. So stay tuned for that episode in the New Year Address listeners. And really, I cannot say enough good things about Monica's book. It is by no means light. I mean, this book represents years and years of research. And there's a lot of theory in there, as I'm sure you can tell from this interview. So she's really asking the why behind the dress of dandyism and the what it means to the construction of Black identity. Yeah, and it's also critically important to bring these non-white perspectives and histories to the field of fashion history. You know, things are beginning to change, but historically, fashion history is really chock full of white Eurocentric narratives. Right, and actually, after the interview ended, I thanked her for writing the book for this very reason. She's not a fashion historian. She specializes in African-American literature and cultural studies. And she said that she was quite surprised at how much attention she received from the fashion history community when she wrote her book. And my response was like, yes, absolutely. This was a groundbreaking approach to address tradition that historically is most associated with this white affluent society. So it's really, really innovative work she did. Yeah, Monica reminds us that Black dandies are, quote, creatures of invention who continually and characteristically break down limiting identity markers and propose new, more fluid categories within which to constitute themselves. Wow. And with that, we end this episode today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of the Black dandy across history and into the present day next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. 
And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye.